This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 50. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Oh, yeah. Tell him, Chuck. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, now, hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 50. Yes, I... I I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. It's session 550. Here we are brought to you by our friends over at gearsluts.com, Universal Audio and Audio Technica. It is a pleasure to be here with you today and doing this 50th episode. I cannot believe it. Cannot believe it. So here we are at 50. Um, and I like to, you know, chime in on the milestone episodes. Uh, I chimed in at 25 and said I'd keep my mouth shut until we got to 50. So here we are. So it's my turn to really just kind of go, woo, go team. Um, a sincere thank you to all of you. That's my chair. Sorry. A sincere thank you to all of you who take the time to listen to this show and write me and tell me, you know, how much you enjoy it and how much it uh, influences you. Many, 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 many nice things all of you have said. And of course, I have to thank the many, many guests who have been on and our and our sponsors. I mean, when I started this thing, I was like, sponsors? Never thought that I would have any sponsors. So, you know, cheers to everybody. Thanks for uh here. I'm raising my my thermos cup here. This is the uh there you go. Clicking it open, drinking. Cheers to everybody. Thank you. Mm. Hear the coffee? I have that much coffee to go. Oh my gosh. And I've probably already had three of those this morning. Okay. So who's on, who's on the 50th show? Larry Crane from Tape Op, Jackpot Studios. I thought I need a good 50th episode guest who has inspired a lot of people, including myself with, uh, the, with Tape Op over the years. Tape Op is a very influential magazine. The other part of that too uh, as far as influence and uh, excitement started many, many years ago. And I can't even remember the year. I'm going to take a guess and say it was 2001, possibly. Yeah, I can't remember. Anyways, the first uh, tape op conference that eventually transitioned into uh, the Potluck Audio Conference, that first tape op conference blew my mind. You ever seen that ad? here in the United States, I can't remember what the company's called, where you go to a website to save money and, you know, in the ad, the people's heads blow off with purple dust and stuff. That's pretty much what that tape op conference did for me. It just, it blew my mind. I had already been doing audio for uh, several years and uh, it was as, I can't remember who, who had this explanation, but it's kind of like, I think uh, Gonzo from the Muppet show. When Gonzo finds his people, I think there's a there's a there's a a Muppet show, uh, an episode. There's some scene where apparently Gonzo finds his people, and it's like that's that's what it was like for me finding my people, the brothers and sisters of recording, um, doing their thing and trying to figure it out. And and that tape op conference, that very first one where Steve Albini gave his keynote speech, and oh my god, that was that was just. M- life-changing not to sound dramatic but it was it was just like okay i'm digging in i'm gonna do this i'm gonna double down on this audio thing because i enjoy it and look at all these people this is fantastic so i you know i have 
Larry Crane is one of the people to thank for that. Of course, John Bacigalupi, the uh, publisher of Tape Op, and of course, Craig Schumacher, the people responsible for that first uh, Tape Op conference. And of course, there's many other people that were involved, but those are the three principles. And uh, so when I set out to put together the show, I was like, I need, I need a 50th episode guest who just really uh, will, you know, dignify 50 episodes. And I thought, Larry. So that worked out. That worked out really well. So Larry Crane coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So I've learned a lot, you know, over 50 episodes, uh, a lot about, you know, trying to put the show together and get it out on time and coming up with a regular schedule. And yeah. And of course, talking to engineers once a week, just, you know, every week I talk to somebody new and I just, I walk away going, wow, that would, you know, in spite of the fact that we all kind of do a variation on the theme of the same thing, it's just kind of mind blowing to to talk to these people and, you know, hear how everybody does something a little different. Now, of course, the, certain themes start to, uh, you know, repeat themselves, which is, you know, expected, but still it's the individuals involved really, really are what makes this show amazing. And it just, it, that's what keeps me going. That's one of the things that keeps me going. Of course, um, all all of you who listen and take the time to listen and you send me these notes that I just read and I just, I shake my head and I just go, I cannot believe that people really continue to like this. It's just, it's a pleasure. And there's Moto, the bulldog telling me I want to go outside. So let's pause for one second. I'll let him outside. All right. Moto is now outside doing his thing and I'm in here doing my thing. So Back to the business of the podcast. Anyhow, just a sincere thank you to all of you. I appreciate you continuing to listen, continuing to support, spread the word. You know, it's very clear if you measure it in terms of social media on Facebook and on Twitter, it's just, it's growing and it's really fantastic. So thank you again. All right. Now, before we get to talking to Larry, I just want to make sure that uh, we talk about these uh, Audio Technica samples that Nino, Michelle, and I have been putting together. And by the time you hear this, those will be up on the website and you can download those and check those out. They're going to they're going to be under the uh, WCA bonus content. Just scroll down. You'll see where I've laid it out. And um all of these samples uh, were done uh, of 40 series microphones because, of course, Audio-Technica has this deal going on till the end of the year where you buy a 40 series mic, you get a free pair of the M50 headphones. And you know how I feel about that. Free stuff. That's always good. So um, what I did was, as, as many of you know, I did talk to Audio-Technica and I said, I don't think a lot of people know what these mics sound like at all. So to just kind of go in blind... I think uh, can be a challenge. So how about we help them out a bit and you send some mics over, we'll make some samples and that should help kind of educate everybody on what these mics sound like. So they sent over uh, 4060, 40, 47, 40, 80, and 4033, uh, some pairs and some singles. So Nino and I and um, Cole Williams and uh, James Meter set aside some time and we went over in uh, a couple days and we recorded some drums, we recorded uh, some acoustic guitar, some electric guitar, and some vocal, just some short samples, nothing major. And uh, we recorded them straight through uh, a pair of Universal Audio 6176 channel strips. We 
uh, no compression, no EQ, just straight in, left plenty of headroom. Then we put it all together and uploaded it to the website. So download those. They're in their 24-bit, 48K WAV files. You can check them out, give you an idea of what some of those mics sound like. And I think you're uh, going to enjoy listening to the differences between them. I leave it up to you to check it out. Everybody hears differently. So get on up to the uh, website and take a listen and uh, see what you think. And also, if you're going to buy, once you hear those, and if you think, hey, I want to buy one of those mics, make sure you do it before the end of the year and then register and get your free pair of headphones. The The banner's up on the website. It's on the right-hand side, as I always say. So check that out. Audio-Technica, the 40 series promo that's got, that they have going on. All right, well. So let's get on with our 50th episode and talk to Mr. Larry Crane here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hello. Hey, Matt. So how are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's been really busy. So let me give you the official welcome to the podcast and yeah, thanks for doing this. I felt like having you on the 50th podcast was kind of on purpose, really. Your magazine... You know, I mean, we're friends, but I mean, honestly, you know, without blowing smoke up your ass, I mean, your magazine and the initial conferences just really lit uh, a fire underneath me and got me really excited about staying in audio and continuing to to get better at it. And so I credit you with that. Um, Oh, thanks. Of course, uh, John Vanderslice and I talked about you. Uh, I remember the first time I met you was through our mutual friend, Nancy Hess at her body's yeah, pan and i remember that and it was a, and i think like i just had a chip on my shoulder because i i didn't know john at the time and i didn't know what a nice guy he was and i and i kind of was like you know what this dude talking about pro tools being the work of the devil that's <laughs> bullshit and i and i and i think i was incensed that he was he was getting action in the magazine over that and uh being like kind of a a guy who loves to dig into the future <laughs> yeah yeah so anyways it's now, it's now i now i think that I, I i tell people all the time to not men don't mess with tape decks don't worry about that <laughs> you know i feel like i've gone full circle and a lot of engineers have you know it's kind of crazy it's pretty strange these days especially when you have some high profile people and i'll just say andrew sheps in particular uh or justin kneebank talking about mixing major records that are commercially successful in the box and yeah um that has a big impact i think on people well i think once they realize that um you know it's it's really down to the the artistry or the the work of a really great mixing engineer and not down to the tools you know at the end of the day i mean i think when when i'm i do a lot of mixing these days and and i feel like you know what i'm bringing is just all the tricks i've ever built up you know and i sit down and i listen and i react to the stuff just like a musician would react to other musicians you know and i think when when people um assume that you can't do something based on your tools that they're they're obviously just completely fooling themselves you know with that thought because it's the same as like okay one time this is a great aside and i wrote an end rant about it but one time a guy told me he asked me what kind of console do you have at jackpot and i go oh at the time i had an allen and heath saber and he goes well you can't make a great record on a console like that you know and it's just the same thing like oh well, you can't make a great record mixing in the box or you you can't make a great record on adats or four track cassette you know it's like Yes, you can. <laughs> it's been done. <laughs> it's interesting your perspective because you see you have over the last how long has tape pop been around now? 
uh, almost, uh, it's going to be 20 years next uh, April. It's pretty mind-blowing to think about every, uh, all the, I mean, first of all, all the interviews you've, you've ever edited, all the interviews you've, you've ever done, the people you've met, the conferences, the panels, the breadth of experience that you have in with, you know, being on the ground and talking to people. I mean, you must yeah. have a very interesting perspective on the whole thing. I think that I've learned a lot. I mean, the initial reason to start tape off was so that I could learn a little bit, uh -huh. you know, because I had a home studio and I was really like, you know, what, is, what does a mic preamp do? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and one of the people I was bugging early on was Greg Freeman, you know, oh yeah, in, in the Bay area. Cause he'd recorded the first couple of vomit launch records and was an old friend, you know? And so I interviewed him in the first issue because of that. And it really was like, so, you know, trying to figure out, asking questions about stuff and and i think i mean to the point now where i'm sitting with at glenn john's house bugging him about stuff and riling him up you know that was, so. that, that was a really great interview by the way oh that was so fun just and, and to, to hear like read it and think of him his voice giving you shit <laughs> i cut out all the f words <laughs> for, on his request but man i, I like the original transcript quite a bit <laughs> I'm curious, after almost 20 years of this, where do you where do you personally sit with audio and a studio and your position in it all? Like, mm. do you still have the fire to, to make records? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I, I get pretty excited. Actually, the change that I, I came through after doing this, that, you know, doing the magazine, learning a lot and learning to engineer at a fairly high level, I think. <laughs> I hope, <laughs> you know, like having, I mean, at this point, Jackpot has beautiful equipment in it. You know, I mean, a Rupert Neve Designs console and a Burl Mothership and, a, you know, several tape decks and great mics. You know, there's not, I'm not lacking for anything. There's no excuse not to make a good sounding record. The engineering becomes fairly easy, as you know, you know, that's not the hardest part of it. And I really took a shift like a, a handful of years back. I mean, I don't even know, maybe like about eight years ago, it started kind of happening where I really take everything on as a producer. Even if I'm hired as an engineer, I think I'm a producer. I really started um, just digging in on the sessions and, and going, you know, advising on song structure and tempos and, and really, you know, making sure the takes were great. Because at the end of the day, if you're overseeing that from the beginning and you do it all right, it's a much easier thing to mix, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so, so I really... I really, really, even like I just did a record with Oz Fritz producing. Oh, wow. And and I was engineering and it was like a mid 50s kind of style crooner record with a really great like jazz quartet backing him, grand piano, brushes on the drums, you know, just great stuff. I didn't hold back and Oz asked for that too. Oz is such a nice, nice guy, you know, but I didn't hold back and saying, I think that's sharp. I think that's flat. I think we could do this better. This could sound better, you know, and I, I think that's a key. It's like, there's there's sort of a thing out there and and I'll, I'll 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 point out my dear friend steve albini for this but there's kind of a thing out there of saying like you know we've got to be documentarians and all this stuff and coming from i studied film in school you know and i wanted to make documentaries was actually what i was thinking of doing and and uh i started playing bass and vomit launch and everything went to hell but um <laughs> but one of the things about that is is choosing your battle there and, and and deciding to do documentaries is more like let's gather up this stuff and see what we can make out you know let's shoot and interview people and build something out of this as opposed to like writing a you do you mean a documentary you'll kind of rough out a script of sorts you know for mm -hmm. a, the way you want the structure to go but you might not get that 
until the very end in some cases because you'd be adding in things and if you're doing a um a, a feature film like a drama or whatever you know you're you're going to be thinking about having to write a script and telling the actors how to act and all these different things and they're two different things and and i see that with record making too i think you know you can just go okay i'm going to put the mics up and record you okay you're recorded you know and how was our take larry oh it's on it's in the pro tools you know it's on tape you know you can be uh, just a real bastard you know <laughs> a passive aggressive asshole basically you know um, i mean there's certain times where you you should record that way mm-hmm. because you are just documenting something very unique that does not need your hand involved to a degree besides getting sounds or something but i really feel like there's a lot of music i would be working on i'd be like this could be better you know push let's push it you know i'm going to make you sing better i'm going to make you work on your vocal melody I'm going to make you work on your vocal takes. I'm going to make you work on your song structure, your, you know, your kick pattern, everything. You know, I, I just find that it's far more rewarding for me to get involved to that degree. And, you know, I see the faces and, and the, I get the comments from the people I work with where they're so freaking happy, you know, because someone is actually investing, you know, as opposed to like, I hit record. And I, I think that's really that's changed for me a lot. And, and, you know, initially I thought I kind of felt like, Oh, I'm a junior Tom Dowd or something, you know, like I'm going to get in there and get involved, but I don't think it's quite simple of following any one person's way of working at all. And, uh, and, and none of us should, you know, but I, I really wanted, I just feel like I really wanted to get in there and become more part of the group or the, you know, support the artist or even play in a record I did last year. I played bass on it, hired a drummer, you know, things like that. So are you saying that in the earlier days you felt like you should be more of a documentarian? I think when you're learning, you might, maybe that's a safe way to go. Yeah. You know, I was thinking the other day about um, Miss Misery, you know, Elliot Smith's song that's in uh, Goodwill Hunting. And I recorded that really straight and simple. You know, it was a Mackie con- uh, 32 by 8 console, a, a JH-16 MCI two-inch analog tape deck, and just a handful of mics and nothing was EQ'd to tape. Nothing was like compressed very much, maybe a little bit on the vocal, you know, and everything was very simply recorded. And I think if you don't have an extreme vision for what it should be, or in a case like that, where an artist is bringing something in that's very well formed, that you stay out of the way, you know, and I think that's fine there. And in a lot of my early records, I was very much more like kind of laying off. I might come up with a cool little overdub idea or something but i get way more involved now and i and I, I find that it makes the day go faster i find that it, it you know it it gives me something to, to dig into and, and to think about instead of just being sitting there like oh take 42 okay you know like just kind of bored with the process which can sometimes happen yeah it almost becomes like a monotonous factory job if you yeah if you take the the other approach uh and yeah i don't i opinion. don't get it yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get that. I, I had a client a while back, a band moved out here from uh, to Portland from uh, Florida, and they said, "Man, this is really great working with you. You're you're guiding us and you're you're talking about this stuff." And I'm like, "Well, yeah. What what did you expect?" And like, "Oh, well, we recorded with this guy in Florida, and he said he would say, bring in a CD of the kind of music you like,' and they'd bring in a CD and he go, "Okay, I'll make you sound like that, but I'm not going to." Um, tell you whether you got a good take of a song or it's a good vocal take or anything like that i'm just going to get the sounds Hmm. and i'm like that guy's an asshole (laughs) you know i mean like that's just a cop-out like if you can't hear pitch or can't even have an opinion about a a drum take then then get the fuck out of the studio you know 
Yeah, it's almost like hiring somebody to uh, a crew to help build the house and them not working with you and offering their expertise. Like, well, you may not want to, you know, right. do the bathroom like that because you <laughs> might end up having flooding in this yeah you know, or i mean that's it's it's really it's passive aggressive i think you know i feel hmm. and uh in a very simple way and and it just i think it's kind of stepping into these situations and knowing to to share all your expertise that you possibly can if as needed mm -hmm. you know to, to you know you don't walk into a jazz session and start going like whoa what are you doing that chord there for that's pretty fancy you know i like simple music you know you don't <laughs> you know you don't change things that shouldn't be changed but you know it's really easy to work with a rock band and you and I have been in these kind of bands and oh, to step yeah. in and be older than them, have way more experience making records and go, those two parts are clashing. They're in the same frequency range, you know, take the bass up an octave for the bridge, you know, da, 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 da. And, you know, cause the toms are heavy there with the bases up higher. It'll have a place to sit, then drop back down. It'll give some dynamics. You know, there's simple things that always work, you know? What about the budgets you're encountering these days? What budgets? What, but, oh, we get paid. Oh, right. Well, you know, you know what's funny for me is I think my career completely contradicts the state of the music industry. Um, and that the the basic thing is when I started my studio in my basement, it was ten bucks an hour, me in the studio. And um when I moved into Jackpot in 1997, uh it was two fifty a day for me and the studio mm -hmm. for as long a day as anyone could stand and now i'm making uh, uh 350 a day for the studio 400 a day for me 10 hour a day max so i'm making 750 a day and i'm getting so i'm getting paid like an extreme amount more than when i started my career i mean my skills are better my studio is much much better than my basement studio or the first incarnation of jackpot but, you know, when people talk to me about that, like I'll be on a panel for Naris or something like that. And people are like, oh, moaning, moaning. There's no more budgets. It's like I've never helmed a record that had a really, really large budget. You know, I think the largest budget I might have been peripheral to would be like Sleater Kenny, like a one beat or something, which I don't know what the budget was because I wasn't the producer. I was just the engineer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, John Goodmanson probably got paid a fair amount you know and i got paid all my rates and uh and there were studio rentals and there was all these other things so there was there was some money behind that but you know i was still only getting like whatever my day rate was back then you've come at it from a different from a different trajectory well, i mean you came yeah. at it from like the ten dollar an hour rate and now <laughs> here you are at this other rate right whereas i think a lot of the people that are moaning um of course, they went through their growing period too. But I think that a lot of those, especially the major label folks uh, and the and the folks in LA and the studios in LA, started up at a lot higher rate. I mean, right. I could tell you that um, I think it when I was in the band Seven Day Diary with Nancy. Um, right. Uh, I'm going to take a shot in the dark here. I think our budget was like for Warner Brothers record was maybe like two hundred and seventy five thousand. Right. And I think we paid um the producer um uh i think 60 grand up front yeah i've never i've never seen that kind of money <laughs> yeah i mean that was in 1994 so yeah so if you're used to getting that and then you're coming down it's sure it's obviously it's a yeah i'm not saying that any of that didn't ever happen but for me i went the opposite oh, I know. way you, yeah yeah you've taken yeah, a completely different path and so i mean my career has only grown and my my studio has completely changed from the original versions you know like there's hardly any gear that actually crossed over from even the old studio 
space. And, you know, in your assessment of tape op, I mean, do you feel like tape op has helped? Obviously, tape op has raised the people's awareness of you in general. I mean, would you agree with that? I think as a, as a recording guy? Yeah. Yeah. I Well, yeah, I get to run a free ad that says I'll mix your record. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, that helps. No, it definitely, I mean, there's a double-edged sword. Because if I was working full time as a producer engineer, you know, I could be at the level of like Tucker Martin or something who gets paid better than me for sure, you know, um, and is busier making a lot more records than I make. But I have to split my time between doing a magazine and making records. And if someone says we're going to work with you for two months, I, I have to kind of, which has never happened, I probably would have to say, I don't know, because I need time to work on other stuff. Um, but you know, the problem is when you do multiple things, the people perceive you as one thing. So, you know, maybe someone in town might think, oh, Larry's like one of the more well-known producer engineer studio owners in town. And then somebody in New York says, oh, he's the editor of tape op. And then somebody who was going to Gilman street in 1986 says he's the bass player for vomit launch, you know? <laughs> so, you know, everyone's got a different perspective on who this guy is or an Elliot, this Smith, uh, Elliot, an Elliot Smith fan might say, Oh, he's the archivist, or he mixed New Moon, or you know. So you, someone's always out there, probably not giving you credit, <laughs> you know. And and I feel like sometimes I'm taken, uh, I'm seen more as the editor or journalist or something than I am seen as as a guy that really knows how to make records, you know. I mean, 20 years running this magazine, I'm sure there's been times over the years you've been like, oh my god, I've had enough. <laughs> John always tells me, uh, John Bacigalupi, my partner with tape op he always says like you've got to let me know if you're ever just ready to be done <laughs> you know he doesn't want to be left in a lurch and i wouldn't want him to do that to me either right um you know i there's times when i've been really busy like remodeling a house or something like that and i have to just stop for like a week and work on the mag just to get cobble an issue together that i really resent it like i want to get other things done in my life but it really is it's so amazing what it it's it brings to me you know the access to people i've always wanted to meet i was at last night i went and saw primal scream in the cult and i was backstage and i met all the guys in primal scream and i met ian astbury and i'm like you know my friend came with me as a big cult fan and he's just like i can't believe we're doing this you know and it's like that wouldn't have happened without tape op you know so it's kind of it's kind of crazy. It's a double edged sword <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's times where you know it's like S Sunday rolls around and I put out a show every Monday and I'm like, oh shit, I haven't <laughs> I haven't put the new show together. Like like finish editing. Yeah, know? like it's yeah. they usually are recorded during the week, but then I mm -hmm. think, oh man, there's a session in there I got to get in and and wrap up, and then you know like eleven forty five a.m. I'm just like, okay upload uh, go oh my god <laughs> and and it gets a little stressful from that perspective mm -hmm. and that's relatively simple i think in terms of uh when you compare it to like tape op tape op is uh there's a lot of moving parts a lot of people involved lots of people yeah um you know like trying to get andy to get the reviews in on time you know because that's hard <laughs> and you know andy hong is sitting there dealing with a million other things and then like all of a sudden you're like come on man and he's like i just i'm on flying here i'm doing this and you know the issue will get held up a little bit sometimes you know so that's, that's where my issue is <laughs> that's what it's andy's fault <laughs> well this this is the issue coming up there's one coming in november here um and it got delayed because aes landed right on the end of october 
Mm. And so we tried to get it all ready before we went to AES. And then we were finalizing it as soon as AES was over. John flew right back home immediately. And he and Scott McShane were like trying to do the layout and get the ads finalized and in there. And, you know, it's just, it's so tight, you know. And then other other times we're trying to get one ready for, you know, South by Southwest or Summer Nam or something. We're trying to push it ahead like, you know, five days. And that's just difficult you know let, uh, let me raise a, a a potentially contentious not contentious but a, like sure. maybe a sticky wicket we'll call it um <laughs> what would you say to there there are some you know not everybody bats a thousand and keeps everybody happy as you know i mean you mm-hmm. read the letters and god i get some facebook comments sometimes about stuff <laughs> i've done where i'm like ah okay all right right so what would you say to the critics of tape op that tape op is i mean obviously tape op has been free and it's clear to see that you know it takes a lot of effort to put that magazine out so i understand you have sponsors they help you know pay for the operation so right the ads the ads pay for the printing and distribution and yeah and everything you know so what do you say to the person who criticizes you know like wow man there's too many ads in here i mean someone who doesn't understand that the the ads cover the cost of the production is is pretty short-sighted i mean if we went reverted to like a journal type format where um it was uh, completely paid for by subscriptions you know we might have a couple thousand readers i mean seriously who's going to pay you know 15 dollars an issue for something like this Mm -hmm. you know we couldn't charge much for ads if we're not sending them to to fifty thousand people then how much can you charge for an ad? If you're sending to a thousand people, your ad is worthless, you know? Right. <laughs> so that's a real, a real uh, scenario. And it was John's whole idea to make it free, completely free. And then we also save on postage, but then it is a requested um, item. And so there's a certain postage rate we use. I don't know how that works. Boy, and then, I, um, I, I have no idea. I've never even heard of that. Yeah, it, it exists or it used to exist. And maybe they changed it recently. I can't remember. You know, we print more issues and we and the ad rates are higher. We have the highest circulation of any magazine in the world about audio recording. Wow. At this point. We've we've maxed we've gone far past a lot of all the other magazines in circulation and scope. And we do the PDF version now too, which goes to any any country in the world for free. So, you know, it's extensive. What what was that launching off period like where you transition from you know a very small operation to bringing on advertisers what was that transition like well the first three years from 96 to 99 i was doing it all on my own and i was funding the the printing cost i didn't really have very many ads i wasn't generating anything really in ad sales and uh I did have subscriptions then, and that didn't really make a lot of money. It's really a pittance, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when um, when John came aboard in 99, we had a discussion about uh, working together. And uh, that was just, it was like, I was I might have quit doing it if that hadn't happened. You know, because it was, I was think I'd, I think I'd maxed out my credit card. And I was recording full time just to cover all my other costs. You know, I'd work like 30 30 day months in the studio and then I would go home at night and work on the magazine and just wake up and come to the studio and work on a record and then work on the magazine. I mean, I would seriously, I mean, I got divorced a couple of times and, you know, I was not, it was not the most ideal lifestyle. So, um, when John came aboard, it was like, yeah, if you could handle, I'll get the content together. If you can handle the layout and the printing and the distribution and the ad sales, I'll be really happy. You know, what was John's background? Well, John, um, he 
had recorded um, the the third and fourth vomit launch records. Actually, that's how I met him. He he had a label called Mad Rover in Sacramento, California, and he had a um, a studio called Inharmonic, which initially was in his basement, actually, mm-hmm. but like a sixteen track half inch, like a Fostex, I think it was. Yes, yeah, Fostex. Um, and so we re- we started recording a record in, in his basement to be on his label, Mad Rover, and and. Um, so we did that. Uh, we had a P and D deal with Rough Trade, and then they went bankrupt back then, if you remember. Yeah, and and that just kind of nuked our whole momentum on the on the third record. And then we did a fourth record. We were recording it for Rough Trade, and when, when they went under, and so that took all the money we would have generated from the previous album and, and ran away with it. And um, uh, you know, it really kind of put a whole a stall on our career with the band and. And we ended up uh, letting uh, Team Beat Records put that out, but really we never got a penny from it because it was just a smaller release. And um, and so the band broke up like in '93 or '92, and then um, John was doing a magazine right after that called Heckler, which was a skate music and snowboarding magazine. Heckler. Yeah. Did you ever see that? No. It was pretty good. It was pretty. It was pretty. It was funny. It wasn't necessarily my my world most of it, but. Uh, I used to, he used to send me copies up here and I'd take it to like the board shops and stuff like that, drop it off. And uh, that was how Tape Op, the Tape Op partnership happened because they were, they just, they'd sold it to a company and then they bought it back from a larger publisher. And then they they were like, well, if we're going to have an in-house publishing company, why don't we grab another magazine? And so that's when we had a meeting up here about him taking on Tape Op. And initially we used the same staff for both magazines. And then Heckler uh, folded, and John just kind of took it on. You know, the the tape op thing is just him and not his his uh, partners or anything. After that, so he he'd been doing publishing. He was also helping publish a uh, Alive and Kicking. I think was a music newspaper in Sacramento, mm-hmm. kind of re- a regional music based thing. I think he helped with that a little bit too. The thing about John is he's just really into sort of a sense of community and doing things and stuff. But he he doesn't want to be like the front person. <laughs> you know what i mean like he's a great he's he's really happy to be sort of behind the scenes and, and working really hard and uh, and i think we make a great team you know we're not only best friends but we we complement each other you yeah know? i mean you gotta admit that this has been a long relationship and it i'm, mm-hmm. it, I'm sh- since, i've known him since 88 <laughs> i mean really i mean that's that's pretty remarkable if you think about it i mean yeah a lot of other business uh, music or or any other kind of uh, partnership in that capacity generally doesn't stand the test of time. I think it, it, we were thinking about it, we were talking about it one day, and John thought that maybe because we aren't even in the same town or in the same office, that that helps, you know, because we don't get on each other's nerves at all, <laughs> you know. We, we And we actually used to talk on the phone a whole lot, like sorting out what's going to be the next issue, and it's gotten so streamlined. We're both so we're both not uh, procrastinators. So, you know, I will get him an issue like, boom, here's all the stuff for the new issue. And he reads it all. He goes, looks great. Hey, you know, has a couple of suggestions sometimes, you know, and then he starts doing layout. And so it's a really streamlined process. You know, we've got Laura Thurmond and Marsha Vidovan selling ads. Um, you know, Scott McShane, I mentioned earlier, does a lot of the pre-press and he does, helps Andy with the gear reviews section and uh, and does a lot of ad built he does a lot of ad design and stuff for people mm-hmm. dave middleton does our website and all of our like our pdf distribution stuff and our and our he manages databases for our subscribers and didn't um, hillary do that for many years 
Hillary Johnson designed the original website. Or actually, the original website was designed by a client of mine, Joe Davis, who was a musician that just was built. It had a small web company on the side. And uh, he did the first website, and, and it kind of just, you know, he kind of built it and left it. And then Hillary started doing more of the day-to-day maintenance after a while. We were hanging out in New York one time. I was staying in her apartment. She's like, let's fix your website up. We started working on it one night. <laughs> so pretty casual. Um, and, you know, just uh, recently she said she wanted to transition out of website design. Mm-hmm. And David come along to kind of handle a lot of the really harder uh, stuff, like, you know, dealing with accepting money and all those kind of things you have to, they're much more difficult to build. And um, and so she's she's back to like engineering and stuff like that full time. Yeah. I just saw her in New York. It's awesome <clears throat> to see her. So jackpot is really um a whole nother ball of wax to deal with as well as this magazine i mean i just hired a new studio bookings manager uh um this month actually she just started yesterday basically (laughs) and uh you know so having to deal with that sort of thing like teaching her how to react to emails and phone calls and what how to how to you know delegate and whatever so there's always a lot to do i've got another engineer uh adam lee works with me um part-time and he takes on some of the junior sessions and he works as an assistant engineer for people mm-hmm. and he um he does all the like stocking and cleaning and and the kind of day-to-day and the maintenance and all that stuff so he's he's taking on that role and how is the studio business for jackpot as as let's just talk about jackpot as an entity mm-hmm. apart from you yeah it's it's up and down man it's you know we try to i tried to make it a place that was really oriented to, towards freelancers and the idea being that I don't have to be in there all the time, which has been my goal since the first few years, because, you know, having to take a week off to work on the mag means, you know, we'll just keep generating money. And so when I designed it, when we moved into the new space um, some eight years ago or something, uh, I tried to make it really simple. Like every patch bay is is totally uh, symmetrical with like uh, a rack you know so like if there's a rack over here full of preamps there's a patch bay that matches that left to right top to bottom you know mm-hmm. and everything's laid out really simple it's really easy to just step in and start working it's a funny environment i was i just ran into billy anderson yesterday and we were talking about that you know and he's like man sometimes it's really busy sometimes it's slow you know it's just it's just hard hard to predict yeah and uh, you can't predict it <laughs> you really can and it's why i keep coming across a lot of people that have to diversify to survive. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know that, you know, you got, a, you got a lot of stuff going on. So not everybody has that, I don't know, that multitasking kind of <laughs> mentality. You know, yeah, like I do those lynda.com videos. Oh, that's and, right. And those generate like a monthly royalty, you know, so I get a little bit of money. It's not like having a hit record or something, but it definitely helps pay the bills. Really? You know? Oh yeah. It's nice. Interesting. So that's something different, you know, that I'm doing. And, and, uh, you know, I just did a thing for Avid where I just when New York, I went to Guitar Center and showed some mixing in the box stuff for Avid and and did, and they hooked me up with a little trade deal for some stuff. So that was really nice. So I do things that kind of help benefit, benefit me on the side related to this stuff. Are you comfortable talking about, uh, relationships with manufacturers and any thoughts about like, I've heard. Like Piper Payne, mastering engineer, was on, and she was saying, you know, mm-hmm. really, it's good to be friends with your your fellow engineers, but if you're an engineer, you really need to pay attention to what's going on with manufacturers and 
of the gear that you want to be using. Oh, I think so. I mean, I know all those people, right? You know, like Jonathan Little yeah. from Little Labs is one of my best friends. And, and uh, you know, I, I talked to all kinds of folks, Greg, Greg Gotari at Pendulum and, and Dave Amos, you know, uh, who invented all the bomb factory stuff and does the Animod stuff with Greg. I mean, I, it, you know, you know those people. You've seen them at the tape up cons back in the day. And, and uh, that's it's really nice to know a lot of those folks because they, they are the ones that are coming up with really cool new stuff. And, you know, sometimes you'll even like have people send you something just to try it out before it's really on the market or, yeah, I collaborate with Scott Hampton a lot at Hamptone, who is my landlord and next door neighbor. And like right now we're building a, a sort of probably a limited series, uh, spring reverb. That's got some pretty, very, very, very unique features, hmm. you know? So that, that's something where I get to go and drink beers with them and play with, you know, breadboards and, <laughs> and listen to stuff and talk about things. Drink beer and break breadboards. Break breadboards. <laughs> it's pretty fun. It's awesome to go next door and just see something breadboarded out and he's talking about voltage versus current and things like that. And I like, go, oh, okay, what? <laughs> what do you say to like the up and coming engineer that they're like, oh, I'll never have those relationships i think one of the worst things that people do and i think we discovered that when we did the first couple of tape op cons was that people um are too isolated you know as as engineers studio owners and you know this feeling you know that we end up like in our little bubble just working on stuff and i think that the the most important thing of, of being a studio owner or a recording person is to be part of a community to be like you know, for me, I started all this because I was part of this music scene in Portland and, and, you know, people were clamoring to me, you know, come on, Larry, open a studio. We'll make a record there. You know, it wasn't like I wanted to have a studio. I really didn't think that was something on my radar ever, but because I had these relationships, these things came to the fore and, you know, I'm always amazed. Like, like I'll talk to Jeff Saltzman up here. He's a fantastic engineer. And I'll be like, well, you know, that, you know, that guy that makes, you know, Wade at Chandler, you know, or something. And he'll be like, Larry, I've never met any of these people. I just work at my house and make records. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, come on, Jeff, you know, you should come to AES with me, you know, and he's, he's not going to do it. But, but I think it's, it's enriched me a lot to know all these people and, and, uh, and to talk to them about the stuff and, and learn more about the products. And, and, you know, my studio is based around really a lot of the best boutique stuff that's been built in the last 20 years, you know, not, it's not built around vintage stuff. I haven't mentioned the, the term ecosystem in a while, but in the early part of the podcast, I, I really talked about it a lot. And to me, some people have an adversarial position with the mm -hmm. manufacturers. Yeah, because they're stupid. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen that, like, if you go on a certain uh, website forum thing, um, they'll be saying stuff on there like, you know, well, I bet, you know, why didn't they put this kind of knob on there? Why'd they do this? Or why'd they do that? Or, you know, this stuff doesn't, this isn't class A or, you know, I heard there's chips and ICs in that and it's no good. And it's like, you know, I mean, there's so many stupid opinions out there about recording equipment and stuff. And, and it's not, you know, the reality, the only reality is like, plug it in, hook it up and try using it. Do you like it or not? You know? Does it do the job for you? Does it do the job? I mean, it really, there's a million uh, variations on mic pre's out there. Or seems like there are. And why is that? Because they're all, there's just a different idea for each one. Transformer, no transformer, you know? Well, it's funny. I, I feel like, you know, uh, gear manufacturers are there uh, making their product. They have an audience and they're trying to mm. sell their product. Sure. Okay. It's simple, you know, economics and capitalism. Um, I think that there are some engineers 
that they don't see that they're essentially doing the same thing, but they have this kind of like, oh, those guys, those people. And it's like, well, you talked about community. I feel that the pro audio companies are just as part of our community as we as engineers, producers, and studio owners are. We all, it's a symbiotic relationship. And and I'm puzzled at many times when people are like, oh, that's just, you know, I mean, granted, there are some manufacturers that make some junk and there's some people that make some really nice stuff. And some there's yeah. there's some snake oil, of course, but it, there's some snake oil engineers as well and some <laughs> bad engineers, bad producers. You know, it's like I mean, I've I've gone to visit people at studios that have beautiful like, you know, old Neve consoles and telefunk and mics and stuff. And they'll be like, man, this thing sounds so good. And then they'll play a vocal track and you're just. I remember John and I were just staring at each other one time going, holy shit, that sounded awful, right? <laughs> you know, and the guy's like, this sounds amazing. <laughs> Listen to that Neve preamp. And you're like, something's broken, maybe. I don't know. You know, so it, <laughs> it's really, to me, that's kind of strange, you know. I don't think there should be an adversarial relationship with gear companies. And and, and the reason, the, and this kind of ties into something with tape op, because you'll see in the magazine, it's very rare we have like a flat out kind of negative review mm-hmm. of a piece of equipment. Because in my mind, the review section is simply like if you and I went out for beers and we've both been recording all day and we met somewhere and we're drinking micro brews and we're going, uh, and you've used anything new lately that's pretty cool or or old you know like you got you getting new kind of interesting kick drum mics lately or anything and we're just talking about some fun stuff and like, oh how did you use it you know and you know it's not so to me the reviews are like that chat over beers after sessions and so they're positive and they're about you know things that help us make records mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're not like trying to pick something apart because you can take you know there's things you know like i bought a focus right uh their, their lowest bottom of the line, like Sapphire or, or whatever it is, like a, a little two-channel mic pre USB interface to use for something the other day, just for like outputs on a, if I'm using like MIDI keyboards and a sampler and a computer. Oh, yeah. So I just bought that to set up like a little fake instrument thing. And it's fantastic. It's so affordable. And it sounds better than coming out of the headphone jack, right? Oh, sure. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, this is great. That's great for what it is. It's not something that's going to, you know, I'm not going to get rid of my Burl converter or something. But, but you know, it totally does a better job than what I had before. And there's, there's so much equipment that falls into those worlds, you know. I have some Behringer equipment, you know, that I've bought. Just like a cheap crossover or a, uh, what's the other one? Oh, a gate, the four-channel gate, just to put on effects to clean them up, you know, outboard effects. Yeah. So there's things that work that are, like, really cheap, and there's things that work that are really, really expensive, too. (laughs) Yeah. And there's some stuff that's really expensive that is just, uh, I just really think that there's some, I I do, and I say snake oil, and and I don't, I'm not trying (laughs) to take an adversarial position here, but... Sure. You know, I'm not going to name any names, but I, I do think there's some gear out there that I'm just like, really? Okay. Well, it's kind of, it's kind of, and there's some people doing great jobs of it apparently, but it's kind of like um, the people that are trying to recreate Fairchild's, you know, with all the tubes and transformers and everything. There's no way to really do that super cheap, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> As we know, but you know, it's kind of hard for me to imagine dropping $18,000 on, on a one channel compressor, you know, and I'm not disparaging anyone that's building these things you know, like Demaria or, uh, oh, there's an analog tube or what's that company in, in UK? I met the guy at the show. I mean, the stuff looks fantastic. It sounds great. 
I just don't think that's a good way to spend one's money. That's a good, you bring <laughs> up a good point. Um, you know, there were some announcements from this year's AES that I took a look at some of the stuff and the prices of some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, I was like, uh, I don't, I mean, do, is it just me or is it crazy to bring out radically expensive products at this point in time? It seems kind of funny. I mean, I mean, I, I can see why, like, like my Rupert Neve designs console, the 5088. Okay. There's no way to build that cheap. No. It's too much engineering. It's too many, like, high-quality parts. And and the the maintenance, the service that, that a company like that provides, you know, they've probably lost money on my console because we had some problems early on. So it's like, you know, it's over time. I hope they make money on these. But it's a really high-quality, really well-built and, and supported piece of equipment so there's no way you're gonna get i have a minimal console it was fifty six thousand dollars you know there's no way you're gonna get something cheap you can make something cheaper that does that function but it's not gonna be that that quality you know mm. like 45 volt plus and minus rails or tons of transformers you know and all the nice things that it has all right i hope you're enjoying our interview here with larry here on the working class audio podcast just a reminder of course Universal Audio, they too are having a end-of-the-year promo deal, and you want to make sure and get in on that. More free stuff in this case. I love free stuff. So the Twin, the Apollo Twin, whether you get the uh, the Thunderbolt version if you're a Mac user or if you're a Windows user and you want to go with the USB 3 version, uh, either way, get yourself uh, a Twin. And, of course, once you plug it in and you register it and log in to you uh, to your ua account then you will automatically receive some free plugins and the details of that are of course um, found by clicking on the banner which is of course on the right hand side on the website so make sure you go ahead and click on that go on over if you've already got the plugins that they're giving away they'll give you a coupon uh, of equal value to uh, take care of you so and the bonus is you don't have to send in anything that's the good part of this deal i like that and um that's common sense, wouldn't you say? I would think so. So anyways, yeah, the Universal Audio promo that's going on until the end of the year, make sure you jump on that. And uh, with that said, let's get back to our interview with Larry Crane here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. With a studio like you have, do you do you prefer to work there or do you prefer to try to get out of there? And I like going to other studios. It's always interesting, but it can be... A little bit disheartening at times. I had a really rough experience in LA recently. I won't name names because a friend of ours owns the place, but but uh, I just had a really hard time because of maintenance issues and and routing issues and stuff that I could have just done in a heartbeat at Jackpot. Uh, it was really basically impossible to work the way I was intending to work. So I felt there was a little disconnect, and that that's hard. Well, and and we all have different workflows. We all. You know, we're right. all different and uh, it doesn't always one guy's, you know, um, one guy's quirks in his studio where he knows all the answers are in somebody else's nightmare. And I yeah, mean, and that's that's the kind of studio I tried to build, not build. I wanted to build a studio that had no quirks because I would go to places and I would go, how the fuck do you route headphones out to the live room? Yeah. And, I'll, you know, that is one of the if you ask yourself every time you walk into a studio, look around, try to figure it out. It's usually the fucking most impossible thing to figure out. It's some kludged thing. It's oh, they're, they're they're normal to the aux, you know, three and four and put it in pre or whatever, like on the console or something like that. And you're like, well, what if I'm using a computer? Like, you know, it just it just so many times that is like one of the worst, worst things to try to figure out. 
you know, in the studio. I, I find that that kind of stuff is just excruciatingly time consuming. If you know, I don't like having assistant people. I don't mind if they want to help put mics up and stuff, but I don't like other people in the room that don't need to be there. And like in Los Angeles, I kicked everybody out except for me and the band as soon as I can get everything working. You know, because I just I hate that vibe. I hate I hate feeling like there could be someone in the back of the room that doesn't want to be there mm. and is questioning the sounds that you're getting. Yeah. Or the takes that you're approving or whatever. Because I might, in my head as a producer, I might have a whole plan of like, I got to ease these guys into t- tougher takes. So I'm going to get a take and then move on and come back and recut that song, you know. But they might have someone in the back in the room who's 25 and they're going, I don't know why they can't make that drummer play better or something. You know, <laughs> I don't want that vibe in there, man. I just, I kick everybody out, you know? Yeah. I, I definitely have had some experiences where I, like, you know, I'm, I'm the one at the helm and then I got an assistant who, or, or somebody in the camp that's like, well, you know, I learned this thing at recording school one time oh, and you're like, I'm pro tools certified, you know, <laughs> get the hell out of here. Yeah. I went to a studio once and the girl goes, I'm pro tools certified. I'm like, okay, you know, which is not a bad thing if you want to do that, but, uh, you know, don't tell me. <laughs> and so she says that, and then I try to fire up the computer, and immediately something's not working. And I was in there with Nels Klein and Glenn Kochi from Wilco oh, yeah. doing some overdubs, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, hey, hey, certified. Hey, <laughs> you sir, think, sir. Can you fix the computer? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and we went outside, you know, and I'm like, you know, don't don't brag to me about this stuff, you know. Because it's usually, you know, like like Kendra Lynn, who's been my studio manager for the last 12 years, went to Full Sail. Okay. And I remember after she she started working for me, I mean, she's one of the most fantastic uh, people that have work, have had work for me that I could have ever imagined. Just did this amazing job and, and really became like a world-class producer engineer by the end of this, too. Although she's tra- kind of transitioning really into another field right now. Um, she got really good. She's a very meticulous person and her recordings are great and her business sense is great and everything. Um, and she, but she went to full sale. And one of the first things she said to me after working on a few sessions and stuff, she goes, I said, you know, how are things going? She's like, man, it's so interesting to be really on sessions. You know, I'm like, well, you must've seen a lot of recording sessions go down at school. She's like, no, I never sat in on a session like none. What the fuck? You're recording school. You never like brought in a band and recorded them. Like, the pressure of getting headphones and sounds and, and, you know, keeping everybody from getting too bored and, you know, come on, you never done that. That's insane. You know, I can't believe the schools are letting people out like they that. should have a, a course in, uh, in these, in any of the schools where they bring you in and it's a high pressure situation. And the whole focus of, of problems is on the patch bay. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. Bad patch cables and, you know, mislabeled, mislabeled. And it's up to you to figure it out. Half the equipment in the racks isn't turned on. Yeah. <laughs> that happens to me. If someone comes in and turns off things randomly and then I flick on the master switch, I'm like, God damn it. What's wrong with that? And I look over the compressors. The off. lights off. And you're like, Oh <laughs> yeah. Oh, very simple. Is this thing on? But I think, you know, that, that pressure, the reality of a session is such an important thing to learn, you know? Like I've seen people just buckle when they come out of school and they try to tackle their first sessions, you know, they'll start recording before they get the sounds together. And then they're just trying to make up for that the rest of the time. You well, know? So what should people do who are listening to this now? How yeah. can they, I mean, obviously if you're in a school and you've already dumped a bunch of money into it and you don't feel like you're getting the quality education about audio, you should, it's up to you to seize the moment and try to figure that out. But right. leading up to it, if you're about to pick a school, 
uh, you know, vetting, make vetting sure, a school. Make sure that, make sure that you're going to get studio time, you know? And if, like, I had an intern once who, who had gone to uh, a conservatory of recording arts and sciences in uh, Tempe, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And he actually got reprimanded for, for just, he would just go and wait outside the labs until there was somebody who didn't show up or whatever. He put his name down on all the slots. He would just go in the labs and work all the time and, and learn stuff, you know? And it's like, it's someone, it's maxing out that experience. And I think the problem is, a lot of these trade schools and I'm not picking on, on crass or full sale or anybody. It's just, it's a, it's a, but it's a, it's a business. And the, 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 the easiest business they can get is someone who's, whose kids graduating high school and goes, mom, dad, you know, I saw an ad in the back of Rolling Stone. I want to go learn how to be a record producer. <laughs> and, you know, that's probably the easiest money that the school can obtain, you know, as opposed to someone like our age that decides oh, I'm done with the computer programming. I'm going to be a, recording guy you know that's that's not your market that's not the biggest market right and so these people you know like a kid say like an 18 year old goes off to school and you know that's it's a trade those those schools or trade schools you know you're you should be extremely focused but if they're trying to party a little bit or they're just trying to you know sort out their life uh, to go and have a you know lecture about you know balance versus unbalanced or something, it might not be sinking in. You know what I mean? And I, I just don't. I think that you know anyone that wants to get in this field, I I firmly believe that you can really teach most of your yourself. But then I also come at this from having taken electronics courses in high school and communication classes in college and playing in a band and making a number of records and and for tracking and making demos. And I come at it from, from accidentally having learned all this stuff along the way mm-hmm. and realizing one day, Oh, I could put a studio together. Duh. You know? So I think I slowly built up a skill set. and say someone like Kendra, she had not done that stuff. She was interested in music and such, but she hadn't like been for tracking or, or, or making records as a band member or anything. So she needed some kind of, grounding mm-hmm. you know where do you start i don't want to speak for her but i know in her case she's full of a lot of initiative and one of the things that she did was to um actually she was the only person that was interning at a studio while she was in school and when she graduated she was the only person that had a job waiting for her at that same place so you know she was really motivated and she's probably one of the few people that kept in that field for this long as well so you know, it's up to the individual. You know? It really is. It's. I think one of the things I have. I, this is my personal beef, and this. Uh, I don't know why I can't shake this, but I have a hard time with up and coming young recordists who have more opinions than experience and who are super yeah. cocky. Yeah, and- there's no there's no room for that, man. I mean, like I'm, I said earlier, something about being a producer or a documentarian recording guy and i think when you first start out you need to be very careful that you're not you know just because you read something that glenn john said in tape op doesn't mean you can pull that same technique off when you're making a record you know what i mean mm-hmm. or or joe barisi uses you know these mics on guitar cabinets and gets great sounds and yes he does but he's been refining that for so long that he can walk in there and look like he's just simply placing it but he has a very specific thing in mind i'm sure you know to to think that you're going to have that because you googled it and saw a video or or anything is is fallacious and you you need to like really be shut the fuck up and listen and, and listen to what you're doing and 
and listen to what people around you are doing. And, and it's really not about having opinions, especially early on, but it's about, you know, learning how to subsume yourself into the process of making records and be a valuable asset. <laughs> the po <laughs> the point on the, uh, that keeps getting hammered home on this podcast over and over and over again <laughs> is, you know, it's good to spread the knowledge, but don't assume that the, the, those who don't have very much experience who are listening, don't assume that, you know, you can be a Larry Crane or a Joe Barisi or, you know, you, because Larry, you're uniquely you and as I sure. am me and Joe is, and you know, all, yeah. all of our, all of our, uh, recording brothers and sisters, now I sound like Cornell West, <laughs> all of our recording brothers and sisters are uniquely who they are and you just got to find your own voice and do your thing and cherry pick yeah. the ideas absolutely I, I think it's really you know i i've learned a lot of things from talking to someone and a little concept will come up like when i'm interviewing someone and i think one like one of them a long time ago was uh dan rathbun i think you know uh and he's an oakland guy right and he said something about using crossovers, uh, like when he's playing back. This is all off a of tape, and he would just run the bass guitar track, say, through a crossover and break up, split up the audio bands, and then put them through the console, like multing it out at different frequencies, and then affecting them in different ways with compression and EQ. And I'm like, aha. <laughs> and you don't know how much I still do that trick all the time. You know, yeah. in fact, Pro Tools now has a plugin called Multi Band Splitter or something and, it's, <laughs> it, and you can just put it into you can take a kick drum put it into like four oxes at different frequencies and then and just salvage garbage recordings you know wow so like i learned that from this interview that someone else did in tape op you know i'm like oh that's a good one you know so you you could take those tricks but then you have to learn how you want to apply them i guess is the thing i'm trying to say you know mm -hmm. but i think you know being cocky is pretty dangerous and I've seen musicians even like, I call them junior producers, like great musicians, but they've never really, they've maybe demoed themselves a lot or worked with a couple of friends, but they haven't really helmed like, you know, a hundred records. And I've seen people like that. And the reason I call them junior producers is like, they'll, they can just steer a session into the toilet, you know, like, you know, a really good friend of mine once did a record with me and he kept telling the singer, like he just, he said, don't punch in, just do full takes of the whole song she was not an experienced singer and it really wasn't the way to go and it and it just destroyed some of this stuff it just you know was a mess that junior producer idea wasn't a good idea mm -hmm. and i'm sure he'd be willing to admit that now he's he's had a lot more experience you know you know i, I see that a lot you know like people trotting out these ideas you know i'm going to use the three mic trick on the drums <laughs> or whatever and i'm like if I hear that one more time, I'm going to punch someone in the stomach. It's like, <laughs> you tr use it somewhere else or, you know, or someone will be working with me and they'll, they'll, they'll demand that I, you know, well, I would really want you to do this sort of like Michael Brower bus mixing thing on this song. And I'm like, I don't know that technique. That, That's just going to lead me down a path to hell. Yeah. He knows it. Michael Brower does a great job, <laughs> but I don't, I get it, but I've never worked that way. I don't want to be just chasing my tail. I want to mix the song. I've said it time and time again. It's very tempting to to run, really try to emulate your heroes or those you really admire. Whether it's you know, yeah, I I, I always bring up uh, Chad Blake or Albini, and sure. you know, it's like those guys are just so uniquely them. Just don't even try. Right. I mean, take little as aspects of their ideas and then make them your own. You know, but don't don't just try to imitate somebody. 
or think that you've read an interview and you got it you yeah. know because you know, that brings up another point much. i mean there there is as compared to when you and i started getting into music and recording i mean there is i don't know there's just a an ocean full of information youtube videos and yeah. books and magazines and podcasts and Stupid forums magazines, and, and, yeah. and, and lots of disinformation <laughs> and lots of hacks and uh lots of opinions a lot of opinions that's the funny thing a lot of extreme I mean, opinions yeah i think that's i don't i don't mind if i'm interviewing somebody and they've got extreme opinions then that's their opinion and we put it you know we we assign that to them and it's in the magazine but we normally don't interview someone that hasn't done interesting work right so that that's fine that makes a lot of sense but when you see people on forums and they're like you know blah 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 that's a piece of crap thing and it won't make a great record or this is how i do this and you know i mean well this is how i do this is a fine thing to say but to say that other things wouldn't work or that that's shit or you know blah 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 the sound of that record's horrible like that's just subjective information yeah you know and it really doesn't do anyone any good but you have to have opinions to do this work and i think having a, a really strong opinion about what you think sounds good or bad um in the recording studio is, is, is really great. You know, that's how you become a producer, but it's also, you know, tempered by paying attention to what's going on around you all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, sorting that information, like, like surprisingly, there's tons of, of info out there, but I've still never seen an, anything written that actually explains how to set a good microphone preamp level. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, every fucking, wannabe textbook and everything out there nothing really kind of like explains it in the best ways you know and i think i did a little bit of that in one of my linda courses like trying to explain like like know the gain structure of, of every mic pre because they're all different and you know understand these things you know is that attenuation on the on the last stage or is that another gain stage you know like understanding this stuff we could do a whole really other pro audio podcast called it all depends. It all fucking depends. <laughs> I'm kind of running out of time, but I do want to touch on this because yeah. you mentioned it earlier. Uh, business sense. Um, <laughs> what have you learned over the years about the world of recording and business sense? The thing that I've seen other people do is the sort of build it and they will come studio model, which. <laughs> Guilty. It's hard. Yeah. Did you do that? Well, kind of. I, yeah. I moved in and ex expected them to show. Right, right. It's hard, right? Yeah. I mean, and it, it's like, and you had a client base when you did that too. I also lost like a lot blue. of people because I, I think I raised my rates too high. Oh, right. That can be dangerous. There's a lesson right there. Shit, yeah. You know, my, my rates have just slowly crept up every year. Every couple of years, it'll go up a little. And, and uh, you know, and still, even with some older clients, I'll go, eh, let's work this out. You know, we'll go, we'll go back to the eight year ago rate. But um, I, I think the things, the thing I, I from my own experiences I've learned is initially I, I really felt like I, I bought the equipment for me to use. And, and, and I used to kind of like laugh at studios that were trying to play the arms race thing, you know, where you're trying to, attract other clients with your equipment and stuff like that but the thing i learned down the line is like it really it does help i mean having a, a name brand equipment of certain caliber does not hurt like my mixing i get far more mixing jobs now having a rupert neve designs console than i did before i had that console but like chris wallace said to me why do you need a new console your mixes sound great and i was like but no one trusts that they're going to sound great and then this rupert neve designs console i'm not saying it's 
it's not better than my old console because it is, but it definitely lent a, a degree of trust. And, and that's a really hard pill to swallow when you don't, when you know your work is fine, but you, you know, it could be a little better with better equipment because it always, it's that little incremental increase at a certain level. Right. Would you say that that's a, uh, uh similar with marketing <laughs> is that similar to you know somebody wants to hire somebody for a job and it's like well, why don't they hire me i i even though i don't have a college education but they right. want to hire the college graduate and i have all that experience but i guess right. the college degree the name or the the piece of paper that says you have the degree says is the equivalent of i have a i have this console i have i have gone in this far of a commitment so there's a certain level of blind trust that can take place there is and and there's a certain you know you don't want to be trying to sell someone on coming to your studio and be saying you know well we can work around that (laughs) you know like there shouldn't be any like weak links and and for years i realized that my my older alan and heath console was was the weakest link in fact one point kendra said I think you can make better mixes in the box. It sounds better than this console. And I'm like, okay, console's got to go. Like you're trying to up the game. And, and it is, it's like, you're also with a, with a professional studio, you are trying to offer something that somebody can't do at home. You know, you're offering up isolation booths, a great sounding drum room, you know, um, everything's implemented, tie lines, everything's in place. The headphone systems in place, ready to go. Infrastructure is all there. We're not going to be bothering neighbors. We're not going to have any other outside issues. You know, come here. You can simply focus on on performance and making music. You know, and and I think, you know, and just and then to add things like oh, an EMT plate reverb, uh, you know, a sixteen track two inch tape deck, things that just very rare that someone would have in a home studio, right? Right. You know, you're offering up all these unique items. You know, five thousand dollar mics, etc you know, that's something that someone's probably not going to have at home. And so you try to make it a different thing. And I think that's something that was kind of a hard thing for me to swallow, starting with a real underground aesthetic and, and a real low budget aesthetic to to kind of move into that realm and finally be like, oh, I've got some of the best gear in town. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's weird. It, it all transitioned very slowly, but, you know, it also made itself evident that I needed it at certain points. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like I'd be like, these speakers are killing me. I can't stand them anymore. You know, <laughs> I need better monitors. You know, I'd run into stuff like that a lot. So it was, it's an interesting path. I think the business of it, uh, the one thing I, I think that was really smart was to set up an S corp a long time ago oh. and actually run it as a corporation and, and try to write off everything and, and have someone else help do the taxes. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of not DIY. I think DIY is the biggest misnomer bullshit thing i've ever heard in my entire life and so to me i'm a, I'm a big fan of finding experts right you know and find a really great mastering engineer that you send most of your work to and and find a, a bookkeeper and a cpa that that really understand your business and uh, have find a lawyer to help you write contracts and, and look go review contracts and things when needed you know that understands the music business and and don't try to do everything yourself because i just think it's a completely fallacious way of thinking you know but what about the the person who does is not as established you know obviously if you have the business and you have that the money coming in to pay for a lawyer and i mean these things aren't cheap i mean when you run an Mm escort i know in the state of california um you've got to uh pay uh i think it's an 800 a year fee just to the state 
just to have the S Corp. Right. It's cheaper in Oregon. So, you know, have someone advise you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, you know, hire, hire a, a, a corporate lawyer that can tell you how to set it up uh -huh. because there might be, you might need to do an LLC or a different way of doing but it. But if you, you do know. have the business and, you know, yeah. then, and that's just like the cost of doing business. It is. I mean, so many things are the cost of doing this. Having to, to take the fire extinguisher in every three years and have it have it recharged, you know. There's there's all these stupid. I mean, I wanted to do an end rant sometime about everything that you'd never think you'd be dealing with, you know, like just funny little fees and and tasks and stuff that you have to do to run a business like this, you know. And you have to you have to be on the level and you have to pay your taxes and and do all these things and and. Uh, and having the an infrastructure around you of people that do those that professionally do that stuff and do it well, it saves you. My my CPA saves me money. Like if I tried to do all that work, even if I could figure it out, I'd probably be losing money every year. Oh yeah, I mean my wife and I every year, you know, we just hand it we over. hand everything over, and I always get <laughs> yeah. the phone call: "Is this everything?" And I'm like, "Oh shit, yeah. <laughs> okay, no, you're right. I didn't get everything. Oh, here it comes. There's one. There's more. one more. I forgot to tell you about this." It's so true. And I think, I think if, when I had a small home studio, even then I scheduled seed it on my taxes and, and I, I wrote off the equipment, you know, and showed my money coming in and, and people seem to be afraid of that stuff. They want to run it all like, you know, uh, under the, under the radar of the government or something sometimes. And I think that's just silly. Cause it's funny too. I know. just, I bought a, a used, um, laptop the other day off mm -hmm. a guy on Craigslist. I got a great deal, yeah. but I paid the guy in cash and everything's fine, but get, I told him, I said, I'll do this in cash, but I need you to give me a receipt. Cause I got to write this off. Yeah. It's the end of the year. And the guys just of all the things, you know, it's like the, the, the laptop's fantastic. It works great. It's yeah. pristine. And, uh, but I just need that receipt. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm getting paid. Oh, you know, I used to, I went to the, uh, office supply store and I bought like a little invoice book, you know, with multiple copies. And I would just make up my own receipts for those kind of things. If I knew I spent the money, you know, just to just staple that to the to the bank statement where you took the cash out and then put on put the receipt, you know, Joe Smith computer, you know, <laughs> and make your own That's receipts. That's true. I could just you know, or just print out a word document. Maybe I'll you just know? do that just because I gotta yeah. document it and uh and mm -hmm. I'm worried about that. Um just that reminds me i bought some chairs this year that i never got <laughs> okay that's right you got to get that receipt it's yeah. interesting just as a parting thought about overextending oneself i'm not talking about necessarily well maybe to some degree some debt yeah. but you know when i look back on all the studio stuff um i don't want to call it bullshit because it's been a great learning experience but if i look back i could say that without a doubt i may have uh had the best time and the most sensible moments of business when I had a small studio in Emeryville yeah. when the overhead wasn't too much and I could put extra cash in my pocket or I could, you know, I could, um, buy gear. Right. It's when I thought, Oh, I got to go big. That's when I, that's right. when I lost my shit. And that's when it just stopped working. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, the move that we did with jackpot from like a $500 a month <laughs> shack to to the hampton hampton building was you know my rent like tripled you know and it's like and uh you know that was it's still a deal for the square footage and everything but it's like to just have way more expenses that means like okay that's that's three more days a month we got to be 
busy, you know, Mm -hmm. to just to cover expenses or something. So it's kind of terrifying. I mean, there's, there's months, right? I don't think this month, I think I'm losing money, you know? So yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got other stuff. I'm doing a bunch of barter work in in December. That's going to mean that I'm not getting paid, but I'm getting trading for stuff. Yeah. It's funny too, because when you can barter and like, let's say you barter with manufacturers in some capacities, like, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, you did a little deal with Avid. It's like that that can be good. But sometimes like you hit the the, the wall with it where you're like i don't need any more gear i need money because oh, yeah. i can't pay I mean, the mortgage with i i definitely i mean i'm actually i just bought a another 500 rack to put some stuff in but you know i definitely i mean i've got to sell some more stuff like i bought i i got a new avid interface and i got rid of my apogee rosettas because it's like i just don't need you know piles and piles of gear it's just don't need it yeah you know, I'm going to sell some EQs coming up because I got some other ones and I think they'll be easier to use and, you know, stuff like that. You know, I, I've I've sold so much stuff and gotten it all boiled down to more of my adventurous uh, philosophy about not only in the box mixing, but um, I'm kind of doubling down on my UA um, ways of doing things with the the Apollos and the, the mm-hmm. their mic, mic pre-modeling and all that. And yeah, and it's. I, I will just say this. It works for me. And that's <laughs> right. You know, it may not work for everybody, but I'm really thrilled with it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, of tools out there now. And and if you know how to make records, you can use those tools. It's like, it's a very simple formula. And, and it's like, I think it's, if I was to start what I'm doing right now, if I was to start completely over, I would not probably have a studio space. I would probably have a smaller mixing and overdub space. Uh, that I could just work in and, you know, like maybe semi-commercial, maybe attached off the back of my house or something. I would have a, definitely have a rig that I could easily transport and, and go and record drums somewhere else or, or in a rehearsal spaces or houses or things and then rent time in places that are commercial and already set up, you know, if, we, if that's necessary. Because you think about the time in the studio, how much time is spent doing like one vocalist, one guitar overdub. And you got, I mean, I'll look around my studio some days and think, what how amazing five percent of the equipment in this building you know oh yeah it's it's crazy you know i I see i see a lot more cooperative studio spaces being built these days too oh yeah yeah you've seen that i'm sure in the bay area as well people bring in a lot of their share they'll share the equipment and have like different rooms that they work in or they rent or they just work in it you know one week a month and four guys run the space or something. Yeah. I mean, I could see a situation of like, you know, putting together a situation where I've got a a control room and maybe two or three other people have their control rooms and we all like, you know, have to sign time in the live room. room. Yeah, totally. Why not? I mean, shave the, shave the expenses down. Sure. Um, Well, Larry, it, it is a pleasure to have you on the 50th, Working Class Audio Podcast. It means a lot to me to have you on here. And it, to me, it's very, um, I don't know, maybe the word's apropos. Maybe uh, <laughs> it's just, you're like the perfect 50th podcast guy. Oh, thank you, man. It's a real honor to be on the show. And, and when I first saw you were doing it, I was like, I hope I'm on there someday. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to ask, but I was like, oh, that'd well, be fun. Well, and, and I've had people ask me to be on the podcast. And I'm like, you know what? 
um, I'm going to take the Larry Crane philosophy. I think it was you that I, I think you told me long ago, like, yeah, we don't, when people ask to be in the magazine, we don't really, then they're on the shit list Then they get on the shit list. So I took, I took the crane approach and, uh, to that. And it's, it's so far it's worked really well, but yeah, once again, just That's a, a true pleasure. And, and I, I appreciate your friendship and support over the years. And, uh, thank you. This is uh, this has been real, a real treat for me. So thank you. Me too. Thank you very much. Awesome. Larry Crane on the Working Class Audio Podcast. A pleasure to have him on and a pleasure to bring you 50 episodes. And I hope you will continue to listen and support the podcast and spread the word. So we are out of time. And as I always like to tell you, that's Cliff Truesdale right there. And uh, Chuck Smith, our voice at the beginning of the show. And I want to thank Cole Williams for his help with social media and some audio support. And I want to thank our sponsors, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, and Gearsluts.com. Make sure you check them out and keep listening. Appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.